Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife in our Annals of Surgery Journal Club. We are now talking with Dr. Shimmel Shaw, our guest author. He is director of the Division of Transplantation and the James and Catherine Orr Endowed Chair in Liver Transplantation at the University of Cincinnati. He is also a health services researcher and founding director of Cincinnati Research in Outcomes and Safety in Surgery, CROSS. Dr. Chad Elimutal, our guest moderator, is assistant professor of urology and a health services researcher interested in how telehealth can improve care for patients. He is the director of the Telehealth Research Incubator at the University of Michigan, as well as the director of telehealth within the urology department. Welcome to Behind the Knife. Thank you. Great to be here. This is uh, Karin here, and I'll kick us off with a summary of the paper. So Dr. Shaw is principal investigator of the first randomized trial of telemedicine-based home monitoring of liver transplant patients. In this study, they designed a home monitoring program that included a smart tablet and wireless devices for monitoring vital signs, delivering daily text messages, educational content, and video chat capabilities. Based on their post-op day, patients received automated questions on their pain, wounds, diet, and medication management. 50 patients were randomized into this program, and 50 had usual care. Patients randomized to home monitoring had a 30 percentage point lower readmissions rate at 90 days, went from 58% to 28%, and they also had improved quality of life scores. In terms of secondary findings, almost one-third of patients needed, did need the help at home setting up the device, and 60% of patients did respond to their text messages daily, but, the, but this dropped out 25% after the first month. However, vital signs were collected 86% of the time as, as requested by the program. So I'll get us started. Uh, Dr. Shah, what was your motivation for doing this study? Thank you, Karen, and uh, thank you, everyone, for having us. I, you know, this has started and has been a passion of mine for uh, close to a decade now in trying to understand how we can do clinical medicine better, especially as surgery gets more complicated. How can we help patients improve their care uh, and have better outcomes? And <clears throat> I feel like uh, the way we have medicine of you do surgery, you keep them in the hospital, and then you see them in clinic is a bit antiquated. And I've always thought about what are better ways to improve care and thinking outside of the box and then going around and just seeing how other technologies all around us are using phones, smart technology, iPads, and we're not using it in medicine. So we've been fixated on readmissions um, because in liver transplantation, that's a big deal. Our readmission rate around the country is 40%. Our readmission rate in Cincinnati is 40%. So we're always trying to reduce readmissions. And we also are always working on trying to get patients to better understand their care. How do we increase engagement? And one of the issues with transplant is it's so damn complicated. Most doctors don't understand it, let alone patients. And I've always felt that if patients were more engaged in their care, they're going to do better overall. And so We went down this path of thinking about how to improve clinical care, include improve clinical medicine. And we thought about, you know, using smart technology and telehealth, telemedicine, a lot of different words. Uh, And the basis is really doing more at home and less in the hospital. So once they get home, how do you care for them besides, at least in our program, a weekly clinic visit, which is 
really just not enough. They come in, they spend a couple hours in the waiting room, they spend an hour in their in their uh, appointment room, and literally in that in that hour, when you walk in, you have to assess all this data in a man in a matter of a minute or two, uh, and then make clinical decisions. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So those were the things that kind of spearheaded it. A couple of the things that have come along the road for me is um, in Cincinnati, our transplant program has grown significantly and everyone always wants to hire more FTEs and get more people. And if I have to wear my administrator hat, I've always thought, can we, is there a way to just be more efficient? How can we teach our providers to do more with less? And I always thought a smartphone, technology, caring for patients when they're not here uh, and giving providers more information when someone calls with a problem is a way of having better care and not just sending them to the ER. So our program's been growing, and I've been trying to figure out ways of being more efficient. And then, um, as many folks that are probably listening, you know, we're always trying to improve care for lower socioeconomic patients, uh, patients with less access to care, uh, you know, racial segregation, things like that. And it's very possible that more technology, which actually might seem counterintuitive, because those 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 people might not have ever had a phone before, but that could actually help be the answer. We give them education, give them a way to get engaged more, uh, and maybe they can have better care once they have access uh, to the center. And then the final point is, uh, as programs grow and patients are traveling farther and farther, how do you care for them? They can't make it to clinic visits, uh, they can't come all the time, or they have a problem and you just, if you need, really need to see them, maybe you can see them remotely. So uh, patients that live 200 miles away, you want to do their surgery, you can still provide them cutting-edge care. So a lot of different reasons and a lot of different things that have evolved uh, over the years, but um, but it all started with just trying to figure out you know, the clinical sandbox and, and really how to, how to give clinical care better. Going on through the paper, they mentioned that the the improvements in readmissions were were like primary for symptoms that could be tracked electronically. So you can track the fevers, you know, pain scores, and then blood sugars. Like, what were the main underlying issues, and like, how were how did you find that these readmissions were avoidable, and and then like the what specific symptoms or problems were inevitable for readmission? Yeah, we as you might expect in the things that the tablet was tracking. They were the areas uh, that we improved in. When we looked at our own readmissions in 2014, our readmission rate was about 45% in 90 days. And a lot of them were these things, uh, blood sugars, uh, medication intolerance, GI issues, and, um, and then blood pressure. So that's why we kind of targeted those things of really the things that we just thought were avoidable uh, and avoidable with closer care. So, for instance, if you're looking on a tablet chart and the patient calls saying they're not feeling well and you notice that they're gaining weight because you have their weights every day, you know, that's a sign that you probably have some renal dysfunction uh, and there's some interventions that you could do before actually telling them to get admitted. Uh, and in this study uh, of some of their early readmissions, uh, we dropped it down in the telehealth arm to only being four of those causes that we thought were being tracked by the by the tablet versus 12 in the control arm. So I feel like we we got some of that accomplished, but we need uh, we need more numbers and need to understand it better. Uh, but that was really the aim was trying to prevent the avoidable readmissions. 
in a case like a liver transplant uh, or any other major surgeries, the inevitable readmissions are the surgical complications, uh, the catastrophes. Uh, and in our world, it's the bile leaks, uh, maybe delayed bleeding, uh, renal failure that uh, is just continuing to get worse. I don't think any technology is going to prevent that. So you're going to have your uh, your basic readmissions that are going to occur after major surgery. And our goal has always been to try to reduce our 90-day readmission rate to 20%. And uh, it's bold, but um, we're getting closer and closer to that by getting more help once they get discharged. And just as a follow-up about, and we'll get more into costs and other considerations, but you use these tablets that were provided to the patients. And as you were developing the study, I'm wondering if you guys uh, put in consideration into using uh, smartphones and technology that are already patients already have them. Even I know the the concern is always with patients who can't afford these things, but most patients do have a smartphone these days. And Dr. Ellie Motel, if you want to chime in as well on this um, topic of using, you know, what patients already have for telemedicine. The the tablet that they got um, was designed just for this study. So it's an iPad that's essentially dumbed down to big print block lettering. Uh, when you turn it on, you can't get on YouTube. Uh, you have, you're basically on to the monitoring about your vital signs and things like that. We had our own videos um, also on there. So there's a little bit of navigation, but it wasn't like a typical um, smartphone or an iPad that you have. It was, it was really designed uh, to tailor to the study. And in 2014, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to understand the, the, the patient's ability to use technology. Uh, and so we did a lot of survey education. And what we found out, 80% of folks um, said that they owned a smartphone and 65% said they used email daily. But when we did our first pilot study in 2015, it didn't, our, it didn't match. Patients didn't understand, um, you know, how to use these things. They didn't know what to do, especially when they went home. They didn't know how to set it up. So although patients say certain things, um, it didn't really, uh, you know, come to light. So I think especially in an older population, uh, we need to really work on education that makes sense, especially when their health care is involved. And if I could uh, chime in as well, and I can't agree more with that. I think that, um, you know, we've done similar studies in our clinic and we found that uh, smartphone use rates are 90% that come into our clinic, but there is a wide heterogeneity in the types of phones that, uh, or types of smartphones that uh, patients have. There's differences in um, their ability to navigate the technology. And, um, and then and so what we found, you know, with something simple, like we've been doing video consultations with patients since 2016, and that we find that some of the simple uh, things that you take for granted um, are can be difficult with patients, um, including um, even just like downloading the application, um, broadband connection. We have patients that are in rural areas of Michigan that connect with us, and while they're using that technology, sometimes the uh, the voice and video can can be interrupted because of their broadband coverage. So there's still a pretty wide, even though these in print, you see that the that there is accessibility to these technologies, there is a, a wide variation in heterogeneity. And you know, I think as Dr. Shaw mentioned, that's the whole point of a pilot. And I think that they learned a lot from that pilot. And and I would probably expect the same thing if if patients were using their home devices. But that's not to say that in a few years that those kind of challenges can't be overcome. 
Yeah, it's really no different than, uh, I'm probably older than you guys, but our parents, uh, when they deal with the phones, they, they don't know how to send a text. Uh, they don't know how to do uh, FaceTime. And I think these patients are probably not much different. Our average age in our, you know, for patients for us is about 60 to 65. And, uh, and then, like I said, they're lower socioeconomic status and things like that. So they might not have had the exposure to some of these devices. Uh, and so there's a lot of education that needs to be done. And so the program needs to be fully committed uh, with spending time uh, on education and, and on adherence and making sure that um, the, the engagement is there. Uh, Dr. Shai, I have a follow-up question on that. Um, so what type of uh, technical assistance did you provide for these patients and how, who was the one that was providing that assistance and how frequently did you have to provide that? So we had a research team. Basically, the way it worked is uh, you had your liver transplant and uh, once they were going from the ICU to the floor, so usually about day two or so, day three, um, I would go consent them talk to them about the study, uh, consent them. And our average length of stay is around seven to nine days. And so uh, while they're getting better on the floor, and a lot's going on, as you know, between um, teaching about medications, teaching about adherence and other things, now you have a different person. A, uh, a research nurse would uh, come and teach them about the technology. And she was trained um, into all the all the integrative components. And then she was also the same person that would go to their house uh, or call them the day after discharge to make sure that they were comfortable using it. We would know right away uh, if there was a problem when they went home because we wouldn't have any information uh, related to vital signs and things like that. So, uh, so we had formal education before they got discharged and then follow up when they got home. I think it's critical because when you get home, you know, all hell breaks loose. You know, one, one of the things that we see in a lot of these remote uh, patient monitoring studies, we've, you know, there's, it, it's, we sort of see some mixed results. Like if we go into the CHF literature, uh, we'll see that there's some studies that have been positive to reduce emergency room visits and readmissions and other um, studies that have actually shown that the remote monitoring increases emergency room visits and readmissions. And I've always felt that the, the technology is really just as good as the uh, patient or the person that's receiving that information. Um, so I wanted to know, Dr. Shaw, if you can speak a little bit about who was receiving this information from patients. Uh, did they receive any sort of training or was it uh, some, uh, was there any protocols that they were necessarily following? So we could spend a long time talking about compliance on the patient side, and we could probably spend an equally large amount of time talking about compliance on the practitioner side. There was uh, a lot of resistance to from my team in incorporating this. I think because in general, people like doing it the old-fashioned way. And uh, so I was one of the only physicians that actually was looking at this data. Usually, uh, the data went to uh, one of our uh, medical assistants, uh, and they would kind of track uh, the data every day. Uh, and then their coordinators would use it uh, if a patient called with a problem. And then they would log in and kind of see how things were going. I, I and about two others were the ones that were kind of looking at it prophylactically. Uh, but a medical assistant was the one, and we had created essentially algorithms for basically hits or um, numbers that were off or text responses that were off as to what to do 
with a response or with a number that was off the charts. And so create an algorithm for blood pressure, for blood sugars, for the medical assistant, and then they would follow that algorithm. And uh, so the idea in terms of, I think, overall from a administrative and a business perspective for a telehealth program is it only works and is actually cost effective if if the people receiving the information are people that are trained, but not necessarily at a high cost, uh, not a nurse, uh, not a physician, uh, but someone uh, like a secretary or a medical assistant that can just receive the information. And the vision I've always had is you have 10 or 15 college students just sitting there looking at data all day. Uh, and then the minute that there's a, um, you know, a bing and there's a blood pressure that's 200 or 100, they follow the algorithm and they figure out what to do. Uh, if we can make uh, medicine that cookbook, uh, we're getting them all the data. Just need to figure out uh, the appropriate algorithm so that the care is safe. Well, it's, it's impressive to hear um, the amount of you know sort of hands-on work you've had to do to track these patients. And we were wondering um, on nights and weekends at other times when you're um, say you're just operating, um, who sifts through the data then, and who's responsible for these patients? So no one sifts through the data at night. Basically, we we incorporated the data from we were working with a company called Care Innovations, which is a, a GE offshoot that created the tablet device and the concept. And we spent a year getting that uh, that data incorporated into our Epic EMR. So every night, all the data from the day would get imported into the patient's Epic chart. So then you could look into Epic and see all their vital signs and uh, see their responses and the questions and things like that, like you would now looking at results review. Uh, and so um, the devices, although data was inputted in on the weekends and at night, um, there wasn't any direct uh, correspondence to that. And that is one of the limitations of doing this is that it's not 24-7 care. Um, it was not uncommon that I would wake up on a Saturday, have a cup of coffee and scroll through and see how everyone was doing. Uh, but that's, um, but that can't be expected, you know, unless you have a formal 24 seven type of monitoring program. When you were monitoring people at home that you had your cup of coffee and you're looking around, how many patients would you typically, you know, round on? Are you rounding on your people that are, I guess, like around in quotation marks, but if you're looking at that, the people who just got discharged, you're looking at people 30 days out, I'm just curious of what, how will you prioritize yeah. the people you're viewing at? So it was usually the ones that were recently discharged. Remember, they have the tablet uh, in our program for 90 days. So if you're averaging, let's say, two two liver transplants a week, you know, over 90 days, you know, maybe it's about 12 or 15 people have a tablet at home at one time. But it was usually one of the more recent ones, just seeing how they were doing and things like that. But it wasn't anything formal. I was just kind of going through stuff and seeing responses and looking, really looking for off numbers or off responses on the text. Uh, abdominal pain, and you see, you know, severe abdominal pain. I'm like, huh, what's that all about? Uh, or, and it's not perfect. Uh, one lady I remember came in with an acute abdomen on Saturday night, and that morning she responded to the text message about pain saying no pain. So I asked her the next day, I said, hey, you know, you responded, and you said there was no pain. And she said, yeah, I, I put that down, but, uh, you know, I didn't really mean it. So, you know, things aren't perfect, um, and it's not uh, – it's just one of those things that we got to keep working on. So the, the reality is this, and the, the mechanics of this are incredibly interesting, um, things, things like that. And so, you know, patients sort of <laughs> misreporting severe acute pain. So I'm curious to hear what you think is sort of the secret sauce of this intervention. You know, one of the findings that surprised me in the data 
is that despite engagement with the technology dropping off after post-update 30, it seemed like that's where the biggest improvement was in readmissions rates. So is it is it really, was it the electronic engagement with the text messages that had the effect or was it some broader engagement with the care team or you know better education or something else altogether in your opinion? The, the biggest thing we got from the qualitative part of this study was that patients really enjoyed it because they liked how we were more engaged in their care. Uh, and the common response was they liked being watched. So I think for the first 30 days or so, uh, if you're into it, you're going to respond and answer all the questions. And what we noticed is after about 30, 40 days, they were getting better and they didn't feel they needed uh, to be so adherent to all the things that we were asking them to do, and especially the text messages, especially if you're doing well and you're going back to work, you don't even have the tablet with you now because you're at work. So things weren't getting answered. Uh, the vital signs, uh, transplant patients are always getting vital signs for the first uh, three to four months almost every day. So that's something they're always usually going to answer. But the text messages became onerous. And for a lot of people that have never texted, there are some people that never actually responded to any of the text messages. So uh, that's just continuing on with more education about this as, as Chad was discussing and, and trying to understand it. But after 30 days, it did drop off. And I think it's just because patients didn't feel like they needed the monitoring. So I think the secret sauce is that you need, you need a program that's gonna, that needs the high-intensity care. If you don't ha- need the high-intensity care, then you shouldn't chase it. And telehealth has really taken off with the chronic elderly primary care population. And we haven't used it in surgery much. And I really think that there's there's more use for it, but probably just in the post-op period. That's interesting. And I'd love to sort of shift gears from the, the liver transplant setting to other clinical contexts and ask Dr. Ella Moodle, uh, have you seen less of a, an effect size in looking at telemedicine in other uh, medical or surgical contexts? You know, if we sent patients home after hip replacement with um, a remote home monitor, do you think we'd have the same benefits? Hi, Karin. That's a that's a great question. I mean, I think um, you know, just looking at the areas, and I think as Dr. Shaw said, there's not a lot of literature in the in or any that I know of in the surgical literature for um, uh, home monitoring uh, beyond kind of using text messages. Uh, but I think that when we look into the CHF literature, the diabetes literature, you, you know, typically what you see is that there are uh, there's mixed results. There's there's folks that uh, will use the technology. Um, they will uh, you'll you'll end up getting the outcomes that you're looking for, like reduced. Uh, you can you know catch a, a exacerb- CHF exacerbation before it happens. Um, but uh, it, we don't ha- we also don't have a lot of data outside of the trials. Um, so when you move to real world implementation, um, you know whether or not patients will kind of uh, stop using it um, beyond that 90 day period is unknown. But, you know, I, I would think that for something like a hip replacement um, or joint replacement, a, a monitoring tool like this could be helpful. But, you know, as I said earlier, it kind of depends on who's receiving the information and what they do with it. You have if you have uh, on the receiving end, if you have uh, a clinician, you know, no matter what level they are, if they're very conservative uh, and they, and you know, if they get a message about abdominal pain, they just say, go to the emergency room, then you're going to see more emergency room visits. But if you, uh, uh, if on the receiving end, if they can you know, spend a little bit more time uh, trying to figure out what the issue is, talk to the patient and, uh, and avoid an emergency room visit, then you'll ultimately see a successful intervention. 
I think there's to that point, there's so many aspects to remote monitoring that, uh, you know, this is one form of it that we used in our study, but just thinking out loud, um, you know, to me, if you're doing a hip operation or any anything orthopedic uh, to really, you know, I know I'm going to sound, you know, really basic here, but instead of maybe using an iPad and looking at vital signs and stuff, maybe, you know, wearing a Fitbit and looking at how many steps they're taking every day and seeing an improvement there or some other way of remotely seeing um, that the operation is improving their care uh, is a way of doing it. Uh, in the colon, I've always thought, looking at ileostomy outputs and measuring that to make sure people don't get dry. Uh, can we measure that? Can can the ileostomy bag um, have some type of Bluetooth component that it can tell you how much uh, volume is in the bag every day? And then we've investigated, we did a lot of work with um, the Fitbit stuff and and got a lot of noise. And so I, I kind of got away from it. Um, and we are, we are looking at um, now in terms of compliance, you can have uh, Bluetooth-related uh, pills, and so you know when they're taking their medications, uh, things like that. So I think there's all kinds of aspects where the field is just untouched, uh, especially in surgery. It's untouched. Um, the ID community and the diabetes community are way ahead of us in this, and, and I think there's other aspects, depending on what kind of operation you're talking about, that we could uh, really, you know, really chase this. And what we're working on, um, and I think you guys are doing this at Michigan as well, but I think that any major tertiary surgery that's elective is ripe for the study that we did, where you can actually educate them in the clinic about the tablet. You can actually give them the tablet um, and all the Bluetooth devices maybe one week before surgery. And so they get comfortable using it. And that way, after surgery, they already know what they're doing. It, the problem with liver transplant was I don't know who's getting transplanted. So our education would occur post-op when they're getting inundated by the pharmacist, the nutritionist, uh, the transplant coordinator. There is so much going on that this tablet ends up being, for some people, you know, just too much. Uh, but I think elective surgery uh, is the way to go, and that really should be the next step in terms of trying to figure out how remote home monitoring would work, and, and more like tertiary, high-end tertiary elective surgery where the complication rate's high, and and you need a high readmission rate. Otherwise, you don't really need the program. I I, uh, I personally think that trans starting with the transplant group like you did was was a excellent idea because I feel like of all groups of you know, of patients you have, I feel like transplant patients have the most well-rounded group of like uh, in multidisciplinary care. Uh, and then this is a great option for them to kind of monitor them. And going on, you know, the hospitals and, you know, policymakers are always looking for ways to reduce costs in the hospital. You think by having this technology to the point where it's, you know, it's a sound project and everybody's using it, uh, can do maybe reduce the length of stay of patients and reduce costs of that admission? I think so. We, it wasn't the intention of our study uh, because we were focused on readmission. So I always say when you think they're ready to go home, keep them an extra day just so they don't get readmitted um, because I'm so focused on, on not having them come back. When we did a lot of our qualitative work in 2014, the number one predictor for quality of life after surgery, at least what the patients told us, was readmissions. So we felt that not being readmitted was the number one factor that we had to uh, that we had to work on. And uh, but I think that um, yeah, sure, you can send them home, you can monitor them uh, at home. I know a lot of surgeries now are sending people home on uh, let's say a clear liquid diet, and then you advance as tolerated. A lot of our quote unquote ERAS protocols, things like that. And so this is a way of making sure 
that they're doing uh, they're doing okay. We have um, set up some telemedicine programs as well at skilled nursing facilities and rehab facilities. So I think there's some value in potentially using it there so you don't have to go around over there uh, or even telemedicine between providers who are rounding on patients and things like that. So I think there's there's definitely options uh, from a payer standpoint uh, and reducing length of stay is it makes some sense for certain surgeries. And on the same line, speaking of costs, we're in a very broken and expensive healthcare system. And if you can first talk about in your study who paid for this technology, but then broadening it, if both of you can weigh in on how can we utilize similar programs, who's going to fund it, how are we going to not increase the burden of costs onto our healthcare system as we integrate technologies like this? So our, um, there's no doubt that there's an upfront cost for the technology, and then you're going to need FTEs to conduct the extra work, just like we discussed earlier with education and implementation. Uh, and I think those could be reasonably cheap FTEs, um, but they're still FTEs. Our study was paid in part by an innovation grant, and then the company, Care Innovations, uh, donated, um, donated the devices for me, all, all 50 of them, uh, to the program to use. Um, and they're the ones that designed the technology. Uh, and then I also had um, some other funding to help uh, pay for the research team and to conduct the trial over the course uh, of a year and then all the follow-up. So definitely needs grant funding um, and, and any other mechanisms to pay for it because you need upfront costs what makes sense on the back end is if you can reduce readmissions. We showed in uh, 2016 that uh, nationwide, every readmission in liver transplant cost the system $40,000. That was the average. That's one readmission. Many patients have multiple readmissions in the first 30 days. So you can imagine if you're reducing the readmission rate from 58% to 24%, it's been paid for. And my ultimate goal, which is why we've been kind of chasing this for a while, is to have payers pay for it. And by doing studies like this, uh, and maybe the next one that will be multi-center, that will be across different cultural boundaries, different uh, socioeconomic platforms. My population here in Ohio is primarily white uh, and older, uh, but um, you know, having other populations being involved. And um, and then showing that uh, across a multi-center platform that it works, then we can get payers to buy in and pay for an upfront cost, which is really nominal. Uh, as we all know, we all have smart technology, smartphones. It doesn't cost that much. Uh, but if you have the devices and the support, maybe uh, three to four thousand dollars per patient. If you think about a forty thousand dollar readmission that's saved, that's that's well accounted for. Yes, I think I think there's a big opportunities for uh, for payers to play a role to partner with health systems to uh, to to get the technology to patients. Um, I think it you know who pays for it really depends on the stakeholder. So if the if there's reduced readmissions, reduced emergency room visits, then the payer has a huge incentive to be involved in disseminating the technology to patients. And then um, if it's reduced length of stay, uh, which is what we, if we can see that with the technology, then the health system has that incentive. So the stakeholder who can see the return on investment um, should kind of be front and center in terms of paying for the technology. And it seems like with the ROIs that are seen with reduced readmissions, reduced length of stay, it almost seems like the technology could pay for itself. I think, uh, you know, as we learn from this study and other studies uh, that it's not just about the technology too. you, the supportive uh, 
FTE or the uh, whether it's a technical support, clinical support that's involved in collecting that data is also really important because that's a big component of it. So the the cost is beyond the technology itself, but also the support of staff. Have you seen um, other payers across the country funding these programs, either Medicare or commercial insurance plans or, you know, the state of VA, for instance? Uh, I haven't yet, but I do think that it's our responsibility as clinical leaders and health service researchers to design the studies to make uh, and to help these folks understand the importance. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've heard of them. I can't name one specifically off the top of my head, but I do remember seeing kind of press releases and so forth about technology being funded by payers. But one example is sort of the, uh, the Apple Watch study, uh, where you have organizations like Apple that will provide a free watch. Uh, they help um, you know collect that data. So it, it's the technology itself is not expensive. It's just who's getting the who's getting the benefit for it. Well, Dr. Shaw and Dr. Alamudal, uh, thank you for your time of joining us today to discuss the uh, telemed- telemedicine-based remote monitoring after liver transplantation. Uh, I think this is a, a great study. and I th- I'm really curious where the next uh, home monitoring systems end up. Thank you so much, guys. It's an honor to be on the show. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. This was great. Until next time, dominate the day. 